So if you would, take your Bibles and go ahead and turn them to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I'll actually uh, read starting in verse 11. We covered 11 and 12 last week, but I'll begin reading in verse 11 just to give some context. This will be on pages 943 and 944 in your pew Bible. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish or dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. These verses are amazing on so many levels, and I hope to try and unpack for you why they're so stunning and why they're so beautiful, and the yield that you can get, what you can glean from these verses for your own heart. If you are listening closely, you see that the main motive for the author in these verses is to show you how you, not just the author or those who have a theological education, how you can have a sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. This is what the author wants you to have. He wants his hearers to have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So what is that? What is he saying is this anchor? And it's not just an easy Sunday school answer. Well, obviously Jesus... He is our sure and steadfast anchor, and we could say that, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's something very specific about Christ and about his ministry to us and for us. So as we look at this, please keep in your minds that the author wants you, the hearer, the believer in Christ. If you trust in Christ, he wants you to have a sure and steadfast anchor in your heart. So, there are two reasons he begins saying these things. I've already discussed the first, so that you might have a sure and steadfast anchor, but he also wants to show us how is it that those who have, through faith, uh, faith and patience, sorry, 
uh, inherit the promises, because that's what he's just said. We want you to be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So the other reason he gives us, verses 13 through 20, is to answer the question, how is it that those who persevere in faith and patience inherit the promises? What does that look like? If you want to be an imitator of those who inherit the promises through faith and patience, how is it that those who through faith and patience inherit the promises actually do that? And the example he gives us is Abraham. Okay, So that's why he brings Abraham into the discussion. Because Abraham in so many ways is what we call and what the Bible calls the man of faith. And I want to show you several passages from Scripture that illustrate the centrality of Abraham's faith and his example to us as the man of faith. So the first comes from Romans chapter 4. If you want to go there just so that you can see these on the page, it's Romans 4 verses 16 through 25. I won't read the entirety. I'll highlight some of the passages. Each of these passages I'll be drawing your attention to are so significant in how we understand the new covenant, how we understand our standing in Christ. Romans 4, verses 16 through 25. This is on page 885 in your pew Bible. And I'll highlight just a few of the verses. Verse 16 This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise, bring those words together. We're talking about the promise in Hebrews 6, those who through faith and patience inherit the promise so that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, referring to Abraham, all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who what shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. Sharing in Abraham's faith means that you inherit the promises that were given to Abraham. And then he goes on, skip down to verse 18. In hope, speaking of Abraham, in hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told or as he had been promised. Hoping against hope, that is his faith. That is a great phrase to understand the faith of Abraham. And he believes that he will inherit what had been promised to him. And this is the promise. So shall your offspring be. And then down in verse 22. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So that's the first passage I would turn your attention to. It's so significant in understanding what faith is and why the blessing now comes to us who are in Christ because we share the faith of Abraham. And why righteousness is counted to us who have faith in Christ. So the next passage I would draw your attention to is from John 8. You might say, well, John... Uh, Abraham didn't believe in Jesus, did he? He didn't have the kind of faith that we do. Well, listen to what Jesus says. John 8, uh, really the whole section is, is verses 48 through 49, but I'll begin reading in 56. This is on page four, uh, I'm sorry, 8, 
41 in your pew Bible. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. According to Jesus, Abraham looks forward through time, and he knows, as we're going to see in Hebrews, in the next passage, that he's not inheriting the full guarantee of these promises. He's not seeing all of them come to perfect fruition or the final fulfillment of these promises. So he's looking past his very own life to the time of Jesus, and he greets it from afar, as we're going to see. So Abraham's faith is looking even beyond his own death. At the fulfillment of these promises, he sees my day, Jesus says, he sees and he recognizes that my day is coming and he is glad. He rejoices in the fulfillment of God's promises. The next one is from Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 19. This is on page 947 in your pew Bible, Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 19. Again, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just highlight a few verses here, verses 8 through 10 here. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him, of the same promise. For he, look, look at this, this is verse 10, this is so important. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he's living in the promised land, right? This is where God told him to go to. I will give this land to your, to your descendants, and your descendants will outnumber the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky that won't be able to be numbered. But what faith meant for Abraham was wandering about in a tent and not receiving the promised land to his full possession because he's looking forward to a city that has its foundations built by God. Now skip down to verse 13. All these died. Speaking of Abraham and Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Did you catch that? Not having received the things promised, but having seen them, just as Jesus said, he saw my day and was glad, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, not just in the promised land, but on the earth. Recognizing that our home is not here. The promised land that is really guaranteed to us, yes, our descendants will one day take this land, but the real city that we look forward to, the real land that is promised to us, has its foundations in heaven built by God. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him up from the dead, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's the man of faith. And the next and last one we'll go to, and I promise this will all begin to make sense in the context of Hebrews 6, Galatians 3, verses 10 through 18. And this is on page 914 in your pew Bible. Galatians 3, 10 through 18. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even... With a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So all of that together, I want, I want you to build all that together, that Abraham is the man of faith and we share his faith. We become his children and inherit the promises given to Abraham because he has faith in Christ, seeing his day from afar, desiring a better country, a better inheritance, a city whose foundations are built in heaven by God, that we enter into that through faith in Christ. And with all that together, that is what should be in your mind and what you should be thinking about when the author of Hebrews brings up Abraham. Because otherwise, this is just a random example of a person who persevered through faith when he brings Abraham up in verse 13, back to Hebrews 6. So how does all this Abraham stuff give us a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul? So let's return to the one of the main reasons that he writes this. We need a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Is it just all this Abraham stuff and we're supposed to be thinking about Abraham and that gives us a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul? No, not necessarily. I want you to see in this text two things that are going on. He begins with speaking about the promises given to Abraham. He talks about God's oath and two unchangeable things, and then he ends by talking about Melchizedek. And what he's doing here, I believe, is he is placing the Christian, you, in between the promises given to Abraham and the promises given to the son of David that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that is your sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, that you have found yourself in Christ in between these two oaths. And that may feel odd. 
right? I mean, is, is it only me that just kind of looks at that and says that this is what the author is trying to do? He's trying to give me a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, and these are the things he talks about. Because we haven't trained ourselves to know what the Bible talks about for the most part when it mentions hope. We think of hope as an emotion that we feel. Right? When you type in hope, I've mentioned this before, when you type, if you've got an iPhone, you type in the word hope, what comes up is a crossed fingers emoji. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hope. That's not a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's sort of like your tastes as a child, right? Most of us can remember things that were distasteful to us as children and kids, those in the room. I bet you can raise your hand and tell me a long list of foods you don't like right now, right? Not right now, but I'll give you some of mine. I hated kiwi, and I did not like medium rare, anything below medium rare steak. I ordered everything well done. Now I see that as a cardinal sin, okay? <laughs> I still don't like meatloaf because I say, just give me a hamburger, right? Uh, meatloaf is just a perversion. So I didn't like eggplant. I still don't generally like eggplant, but now I can tolerate eggplant in several different ways. Your tastes improve. As you get older, and as one of my mentors used to say to me, you need to train your palate to know what's good. Right? He's talking about spiritual things as well. And that's what the author is doing for us here. He says, this we will do. We will push on to mature thinking about Christ if the Lord is gracious and if the Lord enables us to do so. These are the mature thinkings, the mature thoughts, the mature teachings about Christ. This is, as I would call it, an exquisite hope. And you've got to put your thinking caps on to understand how this can be for you a sure and steadfast anchor of your soul, something that is objective, something that is outside of you, something that your heart and your emotions can't change that serves for you as the sure and steadfast anchor. And that's my agenda. I want, I want to highlight as best I can and show, you know, I could boil this down and, and give you five or six points to kind of leave this room with and, and it would be helpful probably, but I want to do for you what the author is trying to do. Okay? I want to highlight and show you this two-pronged, sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. So you've got to think with me. You've got to work with me through these verses. So bring all of that together, all that we discussed with Abraham, him being the man of faith, him being our father. If we join him in his faith, he's justified by faith. He's made righteous through faith, counted righteous through faith, and we are placed in that, and we inherit the promises by joining him in his faith and sharing that same faith. And he has faith in Christ, even as he's looking forward to his day because of the grand nature of these promises. So now, with that all in mind, let's look back at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So, how does this give us a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul? You've got to catch this. You've got to have this in your mind for everything else I'm going to say. Because in the same way that God swears by himself to affirm his promise to Abraham... 
He has sworn by himself to affirm his promise to you. We say that again. In the same way that God swore by himself to ratify and strengthen his oath to Abraham, he has done the same for you. Because in Christ, according to Galatians, who is the offspring, in your offspring, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Christ, if you are in Christ, we share in Abraham's faith. And God takes very seriously the glory due his name. That is his main motivation in everything he does. The glory due his name. Do you remember how Moses prayed? God saw the idolatry that the children of Israel had entered into. They forced Aaron to make a golden calf and they worshipped the golden calf down at the base of the mountain while Moses, and they had just seen the cloud and the smoke and heard the very voice of God. That should show you the inadequacy of spiritual experiences. They had just heard that. They had just seen that. He had given the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up to the mountain. They build a golden calf. And God says, stand over here. I'm going to destroy every single one of them. And I'll start a new nation out of you. And what does Moses pray? Lord, if you do that, what will you do for your great name? Because then the Egyptians will hear this, that you destroyed them, and then they'll say, with malintent, he brought them out. And God says, okay, I'll forgive them. God acts and forgives and saves and sanctifies and promises for the glory due his name. And here's the point. This is what I want you to take from this as a believer. That God puts his own name at stake. He puts himself on the hook. The glory of his name is at stake in your salvation. That he has obligated himself in the highest degree possible of anything in all the universe for your good. That is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that he is so dedicated to your good and your salvation and your joy forevermore, he has put his own name at stake. By my own name, I will do this for you. There is no more powerful or deep or significant or unchangeable promise that can be made in all the universe or any possible universe. That is the degree to which he has promised to do you good. Verse 14, and this is how he says it. This is the nature of the promise. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently or patiently waited, obtained the promise. So here's how you can also take from this part of the sure and steadfast anchor. In the same way that Abraham received what was promised, even as a foretaste of the full promise in this life, we can be certain that God will keep his promises to those who wait patiently for it. Because we all, just like Abraham, are living in an already but not yet state. Right? Do you remember what I, what I just read from Hebrews? They just wandered around in tents in the promised land. They didn't receive it. It wasn't theirs to possess. They were sojourners. 
But they're waiting patiently for it. So they receive in Isaac, his son, the portion, the foretaste, the preview, the guarantee that God is going to fulfill his promises to you. So he receives it, but not all of it. And that is the place you are in, brothers and sisters. You have not yet received all the blessings of salvation. Amen. One of the greatest ones is the redemption of our bodies. As I get older, I, that becomes a more fond promise to me. And those of you who are older than me probably say you don't know the half of it or the third of it or the fourth of it. But there's so much more than the redemption of our bodies. We, just like Abraham, look for a kingdom that has its foundations built by God in heaven. This is why the kingdom for me is one of my biggest emphases. I talk about the kingdom of Lot and desiring to see the kingdom come. And it's here, in a sense, in our hearts as we submit our lives to Christ, but it's not here. We wait for it. We're given the promise of adoption. We're welcomed into his family. But Paul says we're waiting for the day of adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So just like Abraham, sojourning, living in tents in the promised land, not yet receiving it, the Canaanites still ruled the land. But he receives Isaac, who's the guarantee or seal of that promise that would one day come. And you, brothers and sisters, what is analogous, I think, to Isaac in this scenario is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the deposit, the seal, or the guarantee of our receiving the promises. We have received what was promised in this life. We, we have received forgiveness of sins. We've received a place at the table. Yet we look forward to the day and the way we know that that day is coming, the way we know that God is true and that he is going to keep his promises is the seal, the early deposit of the Holy Spirit. And here's how I want to encourage you with that and to give you more appreciation for this very large and sure and immovable foundation for your soul. If Isaac is the validation of God's promises to Abraham, who was born when they were older than a hundred. How miraculous that was in the receiving of Isaac. If that is the seal or the promise that God is going to keep his promises that he's made to you, even after you're long gone, how much greater must our inheritance be if the very Holy Spirit of God, who is God himself, is the seal of our inheritance? How much greater is your reward, brothers and sisters? than everything that even Abraham could conceive in his imagination. And even for you and me, not even your best imagination of what God has prepared for you. The Holy Spirit, God himself, is the seal of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. Just as an aside, because I think this is so important, you might ask, well, how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know he's in me? How do I know I've received this guarantee, this early deposit of God's promises? Well, I'd go to one of many places, but two should stand out to you. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When the Spirit is in you and you receive that early deposit of the promises that are to come, just like Abraham, this is what begins to permeate and team out of your life. That's the fruit, not fruits, plural. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the type of life you live when the Spirit is in you. And then one that uh, took a long time for me to see how significant this was. Uh, Romans 5, if you want to turn there, just because I want you to appreciate how significant this is in helping you know for sure or that you either do or do not have the Spirit of God within you. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Through Him we have obtained access by this faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame because because here's here's the key here. Why it relates to this question, because this is how it is that our hope doesn't put us to shame even now in this life, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Paul is intentionally vague here. Some people say, well, is he talking about us loving God or is it talking about God loving us? And Paul would say, yes. This is how God loves you even now in giving you the early deposit, the seal of the Spirit. He gives you the Spirit. And this is how you know that you've been sealed by the Spirit, that the Spirit in you births in you love for God. That's how you know. And that is the early inheritance. That is the analogous to Isaac's situation for you in this promise. And how much greater must your inheritance be? Verse 16 and 17. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Here's another translation. This is from one of the commentaries that uh, are over this passage. For men swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath serves as confirmation and, listen to this, puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to show or to make especially plain to the heirs of the promise, the irrevocable character of his resolve, he confirmed it by means of an oath. So in the same way that God helped Abraham with an oath, he gives us multiple oaths. In this, there are two encouragements for you that help you appreciate and grasp hold of the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. The first encouragement is this, that God knows that we need help to persevere in faith. Right? I mean, that's, that's a, a very obvious implication of what he's saying here. 
that God wanted Abraham to be sure that he wanted him to have firm confidence because he knows that Abraham by himself, I mean, you can just read Abraham's story and know for certain, Abraham struggles with faith. Even though he's the man of faith, there are times where he doesn't trust God and doesn't trust his way. So he wants to make sure that Abraham has all the ammunition he needs to combat doubt. And so he gives him an oath, swearing by his own name. So that should be an encouragement those who doubt God knows you need help to persevere you can be just like Abraham the man of faith and have times where you severely doubt the goodness of God it is expected that we will struggle with doubt it's just not okay to wallow in doubt doubt is not good just say that doubt isn't good but God is good And gives us sure help to fight it. The second encouragement in this is that he addresses our need to deal with doubt and helps us. He doesn't just acknowledge that we need help combating doubt, but he gives us something very powerful to combat it. He doesn't just say, get over it. Just believe. You don't need to ask those hard questions. You don't need to wrestle with the meaning of things. Just believe. He gives us sure and steadfast help, powerful ammunition to combat doubt. And it's outside of yourself. It's not just how you feel. Your confidence, the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul can't be your emotions or how hopeful you feel. It has to be something outside of yourself, an oath where God has put his own name and his own glory at stake to do you good. Just an intermediate application of all of this. Let the promises of God end all argument with yourself and others and the deceiver. When it comes to your standing in Christ, when it comes to your hope in his ability to follow through on his promises, let his oaths end all argument. That's why I love the the translation that the, the commentary put it. The oath serves as confirmation and puts to end all argument. When your heart doubts, when the deceiver tempts you to doubt, you can say with full assurance and power and authority of the scripture, God has sworn and will not change his mind. He has sworn by himself. Surely he will do it. And you may not feel it in that moment. You may still feel very unsteady. But to appeal to something outside of yourself, something ancient, as we sung this morning, ancient words, ancient promises, that is sure. Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Important question for this passage. And I'd really never noticed this or saw this or understood what he was saying until I really tried to pay attention and prepare the sermon. This is an important question. What are the two unchangeable things? 
Because he only mentions one immediately after, and based on the grammar, that's not even one of the ones. By two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, he's referring to two oaths. But up until this point, he's only mentioned one, the promise to Abraham. So what other oath, what are the two things? What's the second thing? And if you just keep reading in the context, he brings up Melchizedek again. And again, I've said multiple times, this isn't just a theological hobby horse for the author. This isn't just something he finds interesting. This is one of the two unchangeable things that can become for you a sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. I thought what he was meaning is something like this. Well, God is unchangeable himself and God cannot lie and that will not change. So those, they're, they're, they're your two unchangeable things. But that's circular. What he's talking about here is two unchangeable oaths, two oaths that you can go back in scripture and see that he has sworn by himself, put his own name on the hook, that for you, even though these promises were made thousands of years ago, for you today, these two unchangeable things, that is your sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. So what are the two promises? He's already mentioned one, and I'll read it for you. This is from Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18. This is God's response. Abraham has gone up to the mountain as God instructed him. He's about to slaughter his son. And God says, stop. I know that you won't even withhold your son from me. And this is how he responds. By myself I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. There's that singular grammar here. He's not talking about offsprings, referring to the many, but to the offspring who was Christ. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He begins it by saying, by myself I have sworn. In the same way that a president puts his hand on a Bible or when you stand before a judge, you either hold your hand over your heart or on a Bible. What what does God reach out towards? to verify, to ratify, to strengthen the intensity of his promise. The Bible is his own word. The whole creation is the Lord's. Heaven is his throne. What what does God put his hand on to ratify his oath? He says, I swear by myself. I am that I am. I swear by the I am. That is an unchangeable, unbreakable sure, steadfast anchor of the soul. And here's the second one. This is from Psalm 110, verse 4. This brings in the Melchizedek angle. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the gospel for you, brothers and sisters, brings these two unchangeable promises made thousands of years ago together. 
And these two together form this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. But I would wager a great sum of money if I were a betting person that you have probably never heard the gospel in terms of Abraham and Melchizedek together. But that's what the author is doing here. That God has made a promise to Abraham that in his offspring, who is Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And not only would the nations of the earth be blessed, but this one, this offspring, would be appointed forever to be a high priest, the great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, who is also king of peace. This is the one who, through faith in him, you join his blessing. You join the blessing of Abraham through faith in him and God gives you a place in that blessing and in his keeping his promises to Abraham and to his offspring and to the offspring of David that you are now in between these two great and unchangeable promises that God has made to Jesus. You may say, I don't find myself in these promises. I I don't see necessarily myself I see a promise to be blessed through the offspring but but that's not the same as what he's promising to do for the offspring but this is the point through faith you are in Christ okay Through faith, you are in Christ. So the blessing and the promises from God to Abraham and his offspring, which is Christ, and the promise to David's offspring that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, you being in Christ receive these promises. This is the argument Paul makes for our very own resurrection. Because we are in Christ and because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we know for sure that we're going to be raised from the dead. So this promise that he would bless all the nations through the offspring and appoint this offspring of David as the great high priest, that now applies to you because you're in Christ. You're not made the great high priest, but all of the forever language and the by his own name language now applies to you. And this is why the author says about this, we have much to say and it is hard to explain. This is an exquisite hope. If you've been paying attention, this is, this is a very fine dining moment for you when it comes to your faith. This is something that takes time and energy and thought to get to, to understand how you as an individual person, a human being who is finite and mortal, can be placed in between these two eternal promises to the Son of God. But that's what He's done for you. And that brothers and sisters, is what can be for you a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And here's how. God's promise to Christ are sure. There is no way, just speaking logically, that God's promises to His Son could ever fail. Right? I think if you have any understanding of God, regardless of how you feel or how depressed you might be or how sad you might be or how much you might question yourself, God's promises to Jesus are not going to fail. And because I trust Jesus, because I trust in Him, then all of those promises become mine. And all of the good that God intends to do for His Son, He will do also for those who have followed 
him and trust in him. It is not right that one who trusts in such a one, such a great high priest, should ever come to utter destruction. With these oaths, in the same way as with Abraham, God gives us strong encouragement to hold fast. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, we saw, he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And also he said, since then, we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we got to hold fast. We got to not drift. And that is a real danger. We've talked about that. You can go back and listen to those sermons. It is a real danger to drift away and to not hold fast. And this is your sure and steadfast anchor that will enable you to hold fast. And then he says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We are hopeful escapees. And what are we escaping from? From God's wrath. Your problem isn't just sin in some ambiguous sense or evil out there in the world. It's God's wrath towards sin. That's how Paul says it to the Thessalonians. You turned from God, uh, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Your hopeful escapees, you have fled to this sure rock of refuge who is Christ. This is the hope we've been given. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is verse 19. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This hope that he's talking about, as I've said multiple times, is not how you feel in your own heart. This is an objective, tangible, real thing outside yourself that is your hope. And he's talking about these sure and unchangeable promises that God has made to his son. So just like Abraham, God gives us this hope. And we can base our lives upon it. Right? This isn't just a hope that Abraham can feel when he's sad. What did this hope drive Abraham to do, as we read in chapter 11? He left his hometown. He lived in tents. He believed against hope. He offered up his son Isaac. This hope moves you. This isn't emotion or feeling positive about your life. These are sure and steadfast promises, objective things that God has obligated himself to do by his own namesake. You can base your life on them. That God will bless all the nations through his offspring. And my Savior, the Lord Christ, will reign forever as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is my hope, brothers and sisters. And that is what drives me to be able to give my life away. And what should, be able, what should enable you to do the same? That it's not loss anymore. Because you have found yourself, you, a, a small, finite Mortal human being has been placed in between these two great, magnificent, eternal, 
unchangeable promises. You're one of his. So it's not loss anymore to give your life away to this great purpose that God has for his son, Jesus. We have this hope. That is passed through the heavens, that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone, verse 20, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This hope enters the holy of holies in heaven. How can a hope have such power, such world changing and heaven moving and expectation reversing authority? Because the one on whom our hope depends has already gone there. Jesus has entered the heavenly holy of holies. He has passed through the heavens. He stands at the right hand of the throne of God. And if your hope is set on him, if you have fled to him for refuge, then you will enter there too. It's not just about forgiveness of sins. It's about entering the Holy of Holies, being brought near to minister as we sung just a few minutes ago that He has made us a kingdom of priests. He has welcomed us in to minister to God Himself. That's your hope. And that is how big and magnificent and hard to wrap your minds around it needs to be so that it can be for you a sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. It's not just, well, God will be your buddy. God will help you through this time. Of course he will. But he's bringing you to something so much greater. And this sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to this. That you get to be made a priest and minister in the Holy of Holies with Christ. And now we are ready. In the coming weeks. It'll have to wait a few weeks. But now we are ready See why this person, Melchizedek, is so important to our understanding of who Christ is and what he does for you. Now we're ready to investigate and just as a few points of application, just so we don't lose the place that we've come to, the plateau that we've come to of understanding what God is doing in these unchangeable oaths. Read chapter seven, read it over and over so you can understand why he's doing that. And also be honest about what your hope is. Is your hope resting on God's unchangeable oaths? Or is it how you feel? Is it a person, a preacher, a book, a theological persuasion? Your spiritual resume, spiritual experiences. Where does your hope rest? It must be on God's unchangeable promises. And then finally, take it. Take these promises. If you've never known Christ, if you're in Christ, whatever your situation, see this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, these ancient eternal promises that are unchangeable, whereby God has obligated himself by his own namesake. Reach out, flee for refuge in Christ and take these promises for your own. Even today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the exquisite hope we can have in Christ.
that it's not based on how we feel. Give us faith that we need to see clearly these promises. Please give us understanding and encourage us if there's one in here who has never reached out and fled to Christ for refuge, I pray that today would be the day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.